as we already know, are complex. They will become home to 60% of the global population by 2030. Cities are already the epicenter of some of the largest environmental impacts, carbon emissions, transport and resource use, and hence present some of the biggest opportunities for impact. So what must we consider? Could we look at cities from an emerging technologies perspective? How can disruptive technologies and advancements help us tackle emissions, waste or transport? And what are cities already doing? Hi, and welcome to Moonshot City. I'm Preeti Ambani, and I'm here with Juhi Sharif. And together, we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. Today, we're delighted to be talking to Rowan McMahon. Rowan has over 25 years' experience in commercial and not-for-profit fields, with deep expertise in the impact of changing technology on business and a strong interest in sustainability. He first worked on technology convergence back in 1994, while a management consultant at Accenture. He led an internet startup and then took on a number of executive roles at Telstra Australia. In 2010, he took on the role of a strategy director at Crown Fiber Holdings Limited, the government's broadband investment agency, now Crown Infrastructure Partners. In 2017, he formed Wolemi Consulting, which provides strategic planning, digital technology, and sustainability advice to a variety of clients. A big welcome to you, Rowan. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Rowan, just how big of a climate problem are cities? Are they all bad news from an emissions perspective, or is any good news there? Well, I think the answer is a bit of both. There are obviously big sources of emissions and greenhouse gases and all kinds of pollution, but they're also sources of fantastic opportunity because of the fact that uh, people are in such density in cities, they allow us to do things in new ways and they can be the places where innovation starts. So in many ways, the uh, climate crisis has to be resolved in cities just as urgently as it does elsewhere. Rowan, you have immense experience in emerging and disruptive technology and the trends that are going to shape how we live, work, and play. What are the big technology trends which could help make cities more climate-friendly and sustainable? Well, I am a supporter of um, having a good look at new technologies as they come along. And one of the nice aspects of many, if not all, new tech that is out there at the moment is that many of them have the potential to offer consumers and businesses genuine utility, i.e., some form of usefulness these days as our stakeholders and our as consumers as we've moved towards demanding more sustainable solutions from industry you'll find that many of these sorts of uh, solutions that are coming along will have uh, some climate friendly aspects to them and if they don't it's a good idea to ask them why not so some of the technologies that i'm particularly interested in is uh, the idea of a sensing environment um, which some people would term the internet of things What that's all about is in the uh, 1990s, we used to have one internet-connected device per household. Um, Now we have as many as, uh, you know, three or four per person, and obviously a whole lot more than that per household. The Internet of Things will take that even further by putting small chip-style devices in many places in our natural environment, whether it's um, on light poles, whether it's on bus stops, on small cells for telecommunications, 
It'll be in um, walkways and uh, streams. It'll be in beaches and it'll be on major buildings. It'll be used for heating and cooling and sensing all sorts of descriptive information about what's happening around us, uh, pedestrian traffic, vehicular traffic, uh, things like that. Um, so the importance of that technology is probably many and various, but from the point of view of sustainability and climate, the main importance is that it's going to generate a whole lot more data about what's around us. And when we have that data, if we use it the right way, we can make more intelligent decisions in terms of the design of our cities and the operation of our cities and also the future planning of them in terms of what the risks are, for example, from um, climate change if it's not addressed properly, but also what the opportunities are if uh, it is addressed the right way. So a sort of sensing environment I see as being something that will be really of great importance. And the second kind of accompanying technology that will go with that is the right data management that's going to interrogate those data sets that are being generated by this sort of sensing environment and um, really allow us to parse the data and to analyze it and to put uh, information in the in the hands of the right people to make decisions. Um, I do think it's worth noting that there's some real downsides to that as well. There's certainly major privacy and security issues associated with a lot of this sort of data. And we're only at the very beginning of teasing out some of those issues. Um, just thinking about the privacy issues that can be associated with CCTV, the justice issues that can be associated with some of these sorts of uh, devices if they're not handled the right way. Uh, so I think there's a whole lot of work to be done in making sure that the algorithms that help us to analyse these data sets, that they are designed fairly and ethically and that they're transparent. Um, so those are two interesting technologies I could go on, but um, that's not a bad starting point. That's really interesting. I think what caught my attention when you said this a sensing city and that is very interesting because I think we talk about smart cities almost as they are an end in itself. You know, that's where we want to get to. We want to get to a smart city and that means IoT and sensors and all of that. And by just listening to you speak, I almost feel that is the beginning because that smart city, that, that sensing, is going to give us a whole lot of information which we can then process, analyze, and act on to then design solutions that work for the people, work for the environment, and then create those truly regenerative systems. So for me, it's almost that the smart city concept is almost just the starting point, not the end. Any thoughts around that? Yes, I think it is the starting point. And, you know, the history of the evolution of the internet has been that we keep thinking we've found as much to do with this um, technology set as we can. And we keep uh, finding that well, there's more and more things that we can do with it. So I think if we had those data sets available to us, we would find more and more interesting things to do with them. Our cities are not particularly effectively run. We, we run them as a bit of a tragedy of the commons, don't we? If you think of how our transport networks run, if the um, if there's no one on the roading network and you're the only car, the driver of the only car, you're going to get a very fast run, but there's no additional cost to you in being the second car and the third car and the fourth car, and so eventually the road gets clogged up. So I would like to see us explore a congestion pricing or demand pricing model for roading networks. And that would give us a more efficient um, transport network. It would also, if it was done the right way, it could encourage people to use mass transit, whether it's train or busways or the like. And you could build into that a view of what the impact on carbon emissions would be. Uh, so that's one example of um, trying to take 
the sensing environment and take it to the next level in terms of um, using the data in an applied way. You know, here in Auckland, we've just had the Harbour Bridge being shut down due to high winds. And so trying to integrate the information about the weather conditions into the transport network's planning, that's kind of easy enough if it's a simple you know, turning off the Harbour Bridge type decision that's fairly macro. But why can't we integrate those sorts of decisions into our transport planning all the time? Because the weather does impact lots of things in New Zealand and it will keep doing so probably more so in the future. That's really interesting, Rowan. And to your earlier point that I was wondering about is, are we effectively on our way to creating digital twins of our cities? It's something that we've been talking about on an individual level, but I'm wondering if with all of these data lakes that are sitting with different businesses and in government, that actually, if that can build up a picture of a city, if done in a you know ethical way with proper governance and proper security, etc., if that digital twin will really help to inform us from a systems perspective, so viewing the city as a system. It's a very exciting idea, um, and I think that definitely could be the way it works out. I'm troubled by some aspects of how that could work out in a city like Auckland or other cities around New Zealand for several reasons. You know, we have separation between our local and central government authorities. Here in Auckland, for example, we also have separation between our local council and the council-controlled organisations that run our water network and our transport network. So there's some bridges to be um, crossed there. I also think there's a really important divide between public data and private data. Uh, If you're thinking about transport, for example, how much interesting data is held by Uber, how much interesting data is held by other private organisations, and would they wish to participate in that scheme? What would be the benefits for them? And and if they chose not to, could you get a a true um, integrated environment across those different parties? And I think you're going to bump into very, very quickly, you're going to bump into privacy issues and data security issues uh, once you're trying to to achieve that. So the the digital twin idea is really interesting, but it's only one way to achieve some of these goals. I have a feeling that a utopian data future is not upon us just yet, and um, that we're probably more likely to muddle along for a little while longer. Absolutely. I mean, Something that I was thinking of is is um, we've mentioned in a previous blog is the New York City Data Week. So that's when you know the the city has a series of community driven events and they open up data sets and basically allow businesses to kind of think of cool things to do with those data sets. I'm wondering if some kind of similar thing might work here in Auckland or Wellington or Christchurch. Yeah, I've been part of a few hackathons where people have a go at um, some of those sorts of initiatives. One I can think of, although I didn't participate in myself, there was there was an Auckland Transport hackathon, I think about 12 to 18 months ago, where they were inviting developers to have a go at some of those sorts of issues in the context of um, transport in Auckland specifically. I think those sorts of initiatives are good, but you also want to think about how they can be followed up and followed through so that they're not sort of a, just a flash in the pan where everyone gets excited for a weekend or a week, but they're actually part of systemic program development. Preferably there's some funding that can be made available to them if they're really high quality projects. And therefore they don't just end up as being, you know, a quick weekend of hacking and uh, a flashy piece of PowerPoint. 
I absolutely agree on that, Rowan, in terms of the infrastructure available to make that a reality. And so one example is thinking of government as a platform where you have, and when I say platform, not so much a marketplace like Uber or Airbnb, but actually have the platform components where you know, government has this this data layer that is open to developers, open to hackathons, open to businesses to enable different tools that could be created on top of them, that could be layered on top and then available in like a government marketplace or an app marketplace that could actually be put to use, could actually be piloted so we can actually see the impact of that. And so that's one way to think about it. And, you know, there are some uh, forward-thinking digitally savvy governments like Estonia, for example, and and even the UK to a great extent, um, have really invested in GovTech and government as a platform. And it'd be very interesting to see how we could adopt some of that in New Zealand here. Yeah, I know that people have looked quite closely at Estonia because New Zealand and and Estonia are both part of the um, D5 grouping. So there's been quite a bit of government-to-government dialogue there with uh, those two countries and also I think it's Israel and the UK and South Korea, I think, from memory. So that's a good group of countries to be hanging around at. And of course, Estonia has done other things like its um, e-citizenship, haven't they? So they've led on a few different fronts there. To change the subject, Rowan, you've mentioned transport and another key issue for our cities is waste. What technologies do you think could help make our urban waste more sustainable and better from a carbon perspective? Um, A lot of what's happening in that sort of area, I think, is actually being driven by government policy and regulation and pricing as much as by technology. There's definitely interesting things happening with technology, but price signals are, are important. They drive a lot of very pragmatic business people to take a fresh look at business cases that they otherwise might have ignored, even if they thought that they should be looked at. And so, and New Zealand, it needs to be said, is poor in terms of its performance on urban waste. I saw one study that said we're the 10th worst in the world per capita. And, you know, we've all been part of Plastic Free July and those sorts of projects that really are great in terms of raising consumer awareness, but are they creating permanent behavioural change away from wasteful forms of packaging? Are they producing, you know, long-term reductions in waste streams? I would question whether they are, to be honest. And so some of the pricing and regulatory decisions that are happening are more likely, I think, to um, to get you towards that sort of outcome quite quickly. So to take an example, the uh, landfill levy that um, Minister Eugenie Sage, the um, conservation minister, has been talking about reforming. That is a critical reform and should absolutely be supported for a very simple reason. At the moment, it's simply too cheap to pollute. And so a lot of waste is going into landfill because that's just the cheapest and best option for it. And in fact, the problem's got worse since a couple of years ago where China, thanks to its um, national sword program, refused to accept exports from other countries of their waste, including plastic waste, and um, good on them for doing so. That produced a bit of a chain reaction throughout um, a number of Southeast Asian countries that also then refused to take this waste. And so we now have more and more of our own waste on our doorstep which of course is where it belongs, and now it's it's up to us to take responsibility for dealing with it. Um, those factors, together with an increasing landfill levy, will put more and more pressure on businesses um, and councils to some extent to find better options. And that's where the technology comes in. So there's definitely a number of technologies I'm aware of that are in various stages of development that are about um, circularity or um, 
you know, more effective use of, uh, of urban waste so that it can be repurposed. There's a whole range of different things that are happening there um, from the, uh, the composting environment. Auckland Council, for example, is um, starting curbside compost collection next year. Uh, so that will be important for um, consumer compost, which is a big source of methane emissions in landfill, which is obviously a very um, carbon unfriendly, uh, climate unfriendly um, thing to have happening, right through to the um, less organic side of the waste streams where things like building waste is disposed of in New Zealand at a very high rate and we need to become more efficient at that. So there's a number of technology projects I'm aware of that are looking at new forms of building materials that can be more sustainable. They can be recycled at their end of life. Um, they might themselves be made from recycled um, waste materials so that they can um, be a second life for um, something that was once a consumable in, uh, in a household. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting space. And again, when you remember that we're 10th worst in the world, we have a long way to go. Rowan, uh, just on the point of landfill levies, I mean, it's pretty shocking coming from the UK to New Zealand to see that the levy here is going to get put up to $60 a tonne by 2025. In the UK, it's just being put up to just over £94 a tonne. So that's, you know, around $180 per tonne. So it's like three times as much as the levy is here. You know, it is a key lever for addressing change. And, you know, it's a, it's a shame in my view that it, that it doesn't go even further. I tend to agree. And um, where I'm from in Australia, certainly New South Wales, most of the Australian states, I think, except Queensland, have a landfill levy that's in the triple digits of Australian dollars, I think about $150 last time I looked at it. And that's a number where, as I understand it, a number of um, waste to energy type technologies could become economic. So it's a key price signal. If it's at $10 today, and it gets to $60 in the near, you know, in, in the next few years, you know, that's definitely steps in the right direction and is going to start to drive some change in in the right direction. But it probably isn't the the end of um of our waste problem, and I could certainly see that uh, that number could increase further in the future. And it would be good if it did because um we do need those um sorts of waste to energy uh, type projects starting to um to come on stream. You know, I'm curious about this waste to energy piece because yes, it's a solution, but my concern is that if you if you set up the infrastructure for them, then you just need to feed the beast. And then you're not incentivizing circular solutions. Yeah, that's a good point. And um waste is it's funny, we as human beings seem to think that waste is a normal thing, but actually in nature waste is normally something that doesn't exist. Everything's everything is food for somebody, right? The question does need to be asked, why are we creating waste in the first place when waste is not the natural state of things? Rowan, a question around, you know, our current situation around COVID and a number of habits that changed in terms of transport, in terms of better quality air, water. And all of those environmental parameters suddenly seemed so much better across the world. What do you think are the repercussions now? Are we going back? And what are the implications of that for cities, specifically from a New Zealand context as well? Where do you see, I think there was an absolute awakening during lockdowns around the world that, you know, this is the impact, you know, the, the very visible impact of when industrial outputs were almost shut shut down and the difference we saw in our cities. What do you think has happened now as cities are coming out of lockdown, things are trying to, you know, get back to, to normal? 
Where do you think are we going to change? Is it is some of this change going to stick? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I don't think it's as simple as a linear sort of snapback where we've gone from A, pre-COVID to B, COVID lockdown and back to A again. I think actually it's more like a three-dimensional um, thing where we're going to move away from some aspects of both A and B towards C and form a triangle. And I think I've nicked that idea from someone like Kayla Colbin and the Singularity Universe people. I'm pretty sure it wasn't my idea. What are we going to keep? We're going to keep some aspects that fit well culturally and that we like. Um, the technology is obviously the enabler, but in, in many cases, as we know, culture eats strategy every day and it eats technology as well. So my favorite example is remote working because remote working has been possible and in many cases, pretty easy for at least 20 years, probably quite a lot longer, actually. And yes, the tech's got a lot better because we do so much on Zoom and we have cloud access to our, our files and we um, can use um, VPNs for security and things like that. So there's a lot of the technology that has helped to make it happen. But what's been amazing to me has been the cultural change because a lot of people are saying, I can do this. And people like me have been saying, yes, I've been saying that for years. But culture does eat strategy. So some of that change towards um, more remote working will be permanent. Not all of it because we're a sociable species and we don't get quite enough out of our Zoom calls. So some people are going to want to um, meet in some different ways. So you could see more co-working and um, possibly a more selective office footprint for those of us who work in sort of office um, environments. Other aspects that probably will stay reasonably permanent would be things like click to collect and e-commerce and um, just the idea of trading online a lot of people have had to do it and now they've realized that it does actually work and it's quite convenient and they can make money out of it and it's not as scary as they thought so i think some of those aspects will stay but more thinking about the climate front i mean when people are remote working a little bit more that will be good for the climate. It will take pressure off the transport networks and reduce the um, the particulates and the CO2 going into the atmosphere. But I think it will only be a partial... Um, it, the new normal is not the same as, as the lockdown period. And in fact, what we're going to see probably, one would be prepared to bet, wouldn't you, that um, we will see more of these sorts of partial lockdowns in different cities for a period of time until we get a, a vaccine that's solidly on deck and hopefully we can get the vaccination rates up to the point where it will make a real difference. So it feels like a more green environment for the climate than pre-lockdown, but I think there are big questions about the extent to which we want the recovery to be truly green and the extent to which we can ask government to be supporting some investments along that front rather than um, just more roads. Roman, really interesting insights on that. Uh, one of the things that come to mind is some of the habits that have have gone towards, have actually gone the other way, you know, gone, we were really good about, you know, banning plastic in many, many cities around the world. Uh, we were taking our, uh, you know, reusable everything. But now in the after COVID scenario, we're moving back you know, taking a few steps back in some ways. Um, you know, many cities are, um, uh, you know, uh, loosening the bans on plastic uh, bags and disposables and, you know, disposable masks and gloves. And a lot of that is coming back into, into habits, is creeping back into daily habits. What are your thoughts around that? Is that um, something that now with, you know, be COVID kind of being a part of our lives for the foreseeable future how do we how do we um how do we work around that yeah well it's about 
acknowledging the genuine health risks that are out there with uh, certain products and the way that they're handled, um, looking at whether plastic, to take that example, is the right packaging solution for them, and also thinking about that cultural aspect of what what habits we're in. So I'm not sure about you, but I'm still in the habit of carrying my keep cup around for my coffee. Uh, but when we were at level, was it level three? I think it was. The baristas wouldn't wouldn't use it. They insisted on giving you a disposable cup, which made me feel a bit silly because then I was carrying an empty keep cup as well as a cup of coffee. So hopefully the culture will help to remind us, even if it takes a little longer, that we were on the right track and we just have to rediscover that. But in an environment where um, you know some of these concerns are probably going to be with us for a few years, it's good to encourage our suppliers and our retailers and indeed the government to keep helping us to find better options. So to take the example of plastic, it's it's very cheap and convenient, but there are alternatives and there are people working on biodegradable packaging that would be just as COVID-friendly as your plastic um, container, but have a much lower environmental footprint. So hopefully we can explore some of those things. And it's up to us as there's a certain level of the um, of the industry that doesn't sort of want to admit that that um, the fossil fuel sector is quite happy to keep flogging as plastics and to encourage us to um, to keep recycling them and reusing them and uh, and indeed chucking them into landfill at the end of life. It's an important thing for us consumers to do and as voters coming up to the election to to make a statement that we we want to see good alternatives and to look at uh, the role of retailers and suppliers in offering us environmentally friendly options. So Rowan, we've talked a lot about waste, we've, we've touched on transport, we've talked about uh, data and technology. I'm really interested to know, you know, from your perspective, what are the, the best practices of cities internationally that are already, you know, leading the way in sustainability and climate? And why aren't New Zealand cities taking up these approaches or are they? You know, I think the best cities um, are probably ones that have the right sort of design principles and the right ethos in their people. And uh, those principles, if you like, translate into um, a good functioning city. And those are the places where the technology will just help us along the pathway. So, you know, some of the um, the Scandinavian cities, for example, are places where, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that they're known to be technologically innovative places. So culturally, they have a lifestyle that um, that um, is often reasonably green, and um, their culture is that they they don't mind innovating. They're happy to use technology along that pathway. So the technology is is an enabler, but it's not a thing of itself. It's just a means to an end. Can we be doing that more here in New Zealand? I absolutely think we could. And I feel like we've had a few goes at things like smart cities and um, data lakes and, and the like. So it feels like I would certainly have an appetite to see more of that. And there would probably be real benefits for the cities that had more of a go at it. Um, why aren't we doing more of it? I think it's just a combination of a whole range of things that are getting in the way. New Zealand's always a busy place in terms of things that are happening to its cities. We've had earthquakes and um, terrorist events and weather events and the like. And the financials of some of our major cities are not too flash. So the temptation is to spend more on the current projects rather than to invest in improvements for the next round of technologies. But I do think that the payoff would be substantial. And I would love to see more focus on um, evolving those design principles to help it happen. So our built environment is a good example where we have ended up with a housing stock that's relatively low quality. Um, we've got a lot of endemic health issues 
amongst our people because we haven't insisted on the right standards of insulation and um, heating and the like. And so what's the role of technology in helping that? Well, there are absolutely technologies that are out there that are looking to improve the quality of housing stock as a retrofit, um, but also can be used to, um, you know, to help accomplish what a number of New Zealand cities are trying to do, which is to go up rather than out. So as the cities become a little bit more dense, those more medium density type of um, townhouses and apartment blocks um, can, if they're designed the right way, be extremely environmentally efficient. And that's driven by the sensing environment. It's driven by design around water usage and utilities and heating and all those sorts of things. So it feels like if, if the appetite were there, we would see more of that happen um, quite soon. And I would like to see that. Rowan, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground. It's been fantastic to hear your insights. And we really hope that you'll come back and have another conversation with us here on Moonshot City. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Rowan. It was indeed a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure. It's uh, really great to talk with you both. Visit us at projectmoonshot.city and on Twitter at Moonshot City for more definitions, key learnings, and to learn more about Rowan's work. I'm Preeti Ambani. I'm Juhi Sharif. This is Moonshot City.